0: Fi three million pills to a small town in West Virginia, while American families mourn these
1: companies get richer it 's crooked pharma, farmers, pocketed politicians, doctors writing prescriptions enabling addiction it 's the stigma attached to dependency that people judge but
0: don 't listen they 'll engage from a distance to start treating all right, different. John, before you get started, so normally three topics random you pick one the other tier for patreon, but. Got to address a little bit of a, an elephant in the room, an elephant shaped like United States Senator uh, Jim Manchin from the great state of West Virginia. Um, he's been I wouldn't say fickle about the filibuster. I think he's just really not wanted to get rid of it. Um, we're going to we're going to put that to the side a little bit. Like There's a lot we can say on it, and we will. But one thing that always comes up with this and this comes up, same with Kentucky, with Mitch McConnell. um, or Rand Paul, Tennessee, with Marsha Blackburn and Bill Haggerty or whoever, is inevitably when a state like West Virginia senator um, will say, we'll put it kindly, acts a fool. Everybody on the Internet, not an exaggeration, dog piles on the state itself saying, oh, well, this, the West Virginia deserves this or, or West Virginia is so terrible. How could they do this? How could West Virginia do this? West Virginia's trash. We shouldn't, you know, even they shouldn't even have a senator, let alone two. Um, and that drives us both crazy, I know. Uh, and it was the subject of a tweet that I put out today, whereas direct your attention, your anger at Joe Manchin, not at the state of West Virginia. The state of West Virginia did not do this to you. It was a small number of voters that did and voters often which were making the the You know, making the best choice they had uh, against um, Joe Manchin and uh, uh, Patrick Pill Peddler Morrissey. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) this one always gets me because people, okay,
2: people would have been so pissed if West Virginia had elected Patrick Morrissey over Joe Manchin. People, I mean, they would have thrown their arms up, but then. They also are pissed because Joe Manchin won that election <laughs> and there, there were only two candidates. What are you I mean, what are you going to do? You it's again, I know that we hate saying this, but in politics, sometimes it, if that's how you feel, you know, it, it kind of is just between two guys. And so it was kind of damned if you did, damned if you didn't. West Virginia made a decision to keep Joe Manchin, who is an incumbent who, if you know much about politics, incumbents have way more power than, uh, you know, first year senators. So it allows West Virginia to have a better bargaining chip, uh, which Joe Manchin's shown this year. So, you know, we kind of knew that this is where Joe was going, but don't don't be pissed at West Virginia because, you know, we can argue to the cows come home, but West Virginia for themselves I would argue made a made the right decision.
0: Absolutely, the state did. I mean, look, I Jim Manchin is frustrating and downright pisses me off a lot, including now. But I will take him every single day of my living life over one Patty Cake Morrissey. Absolutely, like no zero question. All right. And I mean, even if it's just for getting one vote out of 100 that you like, you voted for the COVID relief bill there, boom, Republicans didn't, Patrick Morrissey wouldn't have. But for that, wouldn't have passed. Not giving Joe Manchin any praise, he did the bare minimum there. But anyway, wanted to say that because, I mean, obviously it's something that we know quite well um, and didn't want to completely ignore. But three topics, John, for the intro. Here you go. Your choice. Um, Coming up on hurricane season pretty soon don't know if we're actually technically in it. Usually it, it, it heats up in August, but I've seen discussions about it, though. So, so I thought I we are in it. So we are technically technically are. OK, great. Well, then this is perfect. Um, one topic I came. Future guest of ours said it. Yeah. There you go. Uh, little teaser there. We won't say who it was. Um, mm-hmm. Bread and milk sandwiches is your first topic. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Trump wearing his pants on backwards is the second one. <laughs> and Tudor's Biscuit proposal That was a picture That we were tagged in Of (sighs) what looked to be I don't know if it's for sure What looked to be An engagement ring And I couldn't I couldn't peg Which Tudor's Biscuit But it was a Tudor's Biscuit
2: It looked like a Mary B to me
0: It's for the gods to decide
2: Yeah definitely Um, Those are all three really good I gotta give the best To our Patreon members (laughs) Because they're all good, so I'm trying to think of of you know how I could divvy it up. Uh, it's really a you know, smorgasbord
0: of, s- a s- of a sexy topics, right? So. Uh,
2: so I think we'll keep uh, we'll keep tutors and. Donald Trump for our Patreon members wow. we will talk about okay. we will talk about milk and bread sandwiches. All right. All right. What which I still think is a great topic. I'm not discounting that.
0: Oh, I think they're is. all three great. One. if you want to hear the yeah. other two, latcha go in there check it mm-hmm. out. Um okay. So the some context is obviously necessary here and I don't know where this came up. I, I honestly don't know the origins of this. So if you do, please tell me and everybody listening does, please tell me. For some reason, and this is not exclusive to hurricanes, but you know, when you talk about storms, what happens, you know, power goes out. Before that happens, it's kind of like, uh, when, when a gas line blows up and people tell you, get you some gas whenever there's going to be a storm. It's usually, it's usually like, like maybe some, some older mammals or somebody, I don't know who, somebody on Facebook, maybe that will go, better get you some bread and milk. Make sure you get your bread and milk at the store to get ready for the storm. Bread and milk. And, Look, you start thinking about it, you're like, what in God's name is so important about bread and milk? Or let me just back up. Where the hell does that come from? That the only thing I can think of is big bread and mm,
2: big milk, big grain. They're the ones who created it. Big grain, all oh, we we never even hit on or, big grain or before. Or big cow, big or grain, big cow. I mean, yeah. or big cow, and we're not talking about the one at Chick Fil A. No, I mean these are, uh, you know. I think that I think that it's gotta be it's gotta be the lobbying that started this.
0: I mean, that's always a safe bet. Uh I mean that's the look, we've we I was gonna and say I was just gonna say we have and talked about the food, about the food guide that. pyramid and now that is a yep. scam done by big bread. We have actually talked okay. about big bread before. Because it was it was like eight to twelve servings of grain, which is fucking absurd. That doesn't make any sense. You
2: would you would well, you would be what I was as a kid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So here then I think we've figured out where the bread and milk thing comes from because these were these are people in their yester years that were relying on the food guide pyramid. They were worried that their children were not gonna get their, their six to twelve servings or however many of grain and their like four to twenty seven servings of milk or whatever, and so that's why. But yeah. I think the, <laughs> the more important thing is like what are you gonna do with that? You gonna make milk sandwiches? maybe
2: if you plant the bread it grows and you water it with milk something magical happens
0: whoa never tried it actually, it, it actually you.
2: turns your electricity back on
0: <laughs> the, the, god that would I mean you're breaking some new ground there
2: yeah try it uh, actually please don't uh, the no. I, I again I think it's just panicking people panic they don't know what to buy they're you know uh, which now is hilarious for me now that I even think about it because I'm lactose intolerant and gluten free, so I can't even make milk sandwiches. So you're you're going it's to die if there's
0: a major storm. Correct. It's over for me. Shit! You better. We we'll have to say you know, sayonara. This brings up a better point, which is really important, and it's that like people panic by stupid things. I mean, we've we've lived through this twice, all right? We saw in the beginning of the pandemic where people were panic buying toilet paper, which, again, has puzzled me to this day because they were leaving food on the shelves and getting toilet paper. And I'm sitting here thinking, how how much are these people shitting that they think that, like, they, gotta, they're, they need all – they're crying ripping toilet paper out of people's hands. My suggestion is get in the tub. If you don't have toilet paper – Get in, get in, use the, like, wash yourself. There are different ways to clean your asshole. There are not different ways to nourish your body other than food, for the most part.
2: You could use the bread as toilet paper.
0: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, look, I've wiped my ass with worse. I've been in Boy Scouts, and, uh, I mean, we had to use any leaf we found, even if it was poison ivy but yeah I, I think that is just gonna that will always be something that blows my mind is the toilet paper shortages because it's like i would walk in a the store there'd be plenty of food like you know there'd be plenty of like you know you get your hamburger helper or whatever or you get like anything but toilet paper and paper towels now i understand paper towels like the hygiene shit okay that's a little bit more excusable even though most people who can buy paper towels have actual right. towels that they can use whatever but toilet paper never nobody shits that much there, are, I guarantee there are some people that still have toilet paper that they bought in March twenty twenty.
2: One hundred percent, they they definitely do. Uh, especially the resellers who are like trying to buy it and sell it for profit. Which I mean, that has not been forgotten yet.
0: Um, oh, the the f-ing hand sanitizer yeah. people, my, the worst. My, I think
2: that my favorite thing is like every time I think about the um, the pandemic now, I think of people panic buying toilet paper panic buying uh bread but also buying all of the pokemon and sports cards at the same time
0: okay i respect that because that's strategy that's fair you know what uh people should also be panic buying right now is some cornbread hemp cbd john i know we always make it full circle don't stop listening right now until you hear about the gummies all right damn it. Listen to the fucking gummy. They have to listen. Hold on. You're obligated. You are
2: obligated to listen because Jim got engaged. So you have to listen. Jim Higdon, the co-founder of Cornbread Hemp, is now engaged. So you have to listen
0: to this advertisement as a wedding present to Jim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean- look, you'd be a dick not to. Anyway, yeah, corn, be dick. cornbread hemp, they've got delicious gummies. They've also got great CBD. It turns the dial down in your head, makes you feel good. Um, it is not going to get you high. It's just going to get you just right. It's um, full spectrum. That means as much THC as the government will allow and having it not be considered weed. And John, we always quote Afro Man here. Thankfully, he's not demanding any of the uh, revenue from this. But what about Afro Man is relevant to this? Look, because it's flower only, it's the good stuff, Chuck. So we don't have to pick out the seeds and stuff. Don't have to pick them out. They're already gone. They pick them out for you. Um, also important to know: this is a Kentucky-based company. They are not funded by corporations. They are crowd-funded and a local family-owned. That's why we like dealing with them. Jim is a great guy. He's really perfected a great product, and we would not be endorsing it if we had not, you know, tried it ourselves and we had not really actually enjoyed it. So, um, coming to you right now, try the gummies um, and uh, and have yourself a good time. John, promo code. John, tell the people what they've won. Uh, you, because you listened to this entire
2: advertisement, you won twenty five percent off your order. I'm look. It's a game show now. You just won twenty five percent off. All you have to do, go. You make your order when you're checking out. Promo code latch A P P O D L A C H I A. Twenty five percent off. Again, I don't know how Jim's making money, but. You know, he's got a wedding coming up, so go buy some products to support
0: his wedding fund. Supporting the podcast means supporting Jim Higdon's wedding fund. Mm -hmm. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Check it out, cornbreadhemp.com. Anyway, this is, I guess I should say, this is the last part of our opioid series. Um, Big, big, uh, big deal, you know, five-parter. I thought it was fun. There you go. And Patrick Morrissey thought it was shit, so that's actually really. <laughs> um, anyway, part five, last part of our opioid series, and I think it is a perfect way to end it. Uh, we have on Bethany Hallam. Bethany is an at large council member for Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. That is the county where Pittsburgh is. Bethany's story is really inspiring. She was uh, overprescribed opioids uh, after tearing both of her ACLs in high school, became addicted to prescription opioids uh, and was formerly incarcerated, has since recovered and has put her best foot forward uh, by getting involved in local politics to change things for the better, which is why she is now a at-large county council member for Allegheny County. Her story is really interesting. We hear about her, um, kind of her origin story, how how she became addicted to opioids, what her experience was like being incarcerated, and how she has come out of that experience and really uh, worked to change her community and to change policy, not just on, on opioids, but just policy in general throughout uh, Allegheny County really interesting. Um, John, what do you think about it? I thought it was a, honestly, it was
2: something that it was a perspective that we needed. I think it's going to, it's going to show a lot of people that this stereotype that people who, you know, get addicted are, you know, these junkies who had it coming to them, you know, like that stereotype that you kind of hear. And then you're also going to hear about, you know, somebody breaking the stereotype that, people who, you know, are battling addiction can't make it out. And I think that that's a really important story that people need to hear is not only can you overcome this, but you can persevere and you can then make a change for everybody else who's you know trying the same trying to go through the same thing you you've gone through.
0: Yeah, definitely. Her, her perspective is extremely important. And obviously, we wanted to have somebody on the show that has struggled with uh, opioid addiction. Um, and so hers is a really great story and one that I think, like you said, is worth telling and really necessary to tell, um, And especially how she's used that experience to, to make her world a better place. So without uh, further ado, Bethany Hallam. I think we can start with that then um, because when I was reading up about you and what you mentioned is this actually started for you at a really young age I think you were in high school right and you had some injuries and were prescribed Vicodin I'm wondering if you can kind of talk us through that beginning part of all this for you
1: Right. So I grew up in a house with both my parents, my two younger siblings in a suburb, the North Hills of Pittsburgh, about 10 minutes north of downtown Pittsburgh. And my parents always had a philosophy that the more activities that myself and my siblings were involved in, the less opportunity for trouble there was for us. So I always played a ton of sports. I was a swimmer, a softball player, and eventually landed on lacrosse. And so I played lacrosse from seventh grade on. My junior year, I was a varsity lacrosse player, and I tore my ACL and meniscus. And at the time, I really had no idea what that meant. I didn't think anything of it. I had broken bones before and, you know, it never changed the trajectory of my life. And so I did, you know, the regular process. Right. So I I went to the hospital, uh, got x-rays, nothing was broken, got MRIs, found out about the torn ligaments and was prescribed Vicodin. And so my mom, who is actually a pharmacist, you know, she was following along with the whole path, you know, taking it as the doctor had prescribed it. There was never any abuse going on. And uh, I went through the whole process of getting the surgery and doing the physical therapy, refilling that Vicodin all along. And then right as I was about to finish my last prescription of Vicodin, I got cleared to go back to sports and I tore my other ACL and meniscus. And so... Wow back-to-back junior and senior years of high school. And so it was the same thing all over again. Prescription of Vicodin with a bunch of refills to make it through the surgery and physical therapy. So altogether, it was about 18 months of being prescribed the prescription painkillers. And then one day, the doctor said, okay, your refills are done, you're good to go. And I stopped taking them, and I was not good to go. I just felt at the time... Had no idea what it was. Come to find out later, I was going through withdrawal symptoms, and I just felt like you know a really bad case of the flu. I guess is the mm-hmm. best way to explain it. I was telling one of my friends uh, end of our senior year high school about it, and he's like, "Oh, well, you're going, you're detoxing. Here, take this pill." Uh, it turns out his sister had pediatric cancer and was prescribed painkillers and he was taking them and he gave me one and I felt magically better. This one little pill took away all my pain, all my sickness, and I was good to go. And so that's kind of, it was all downhill after that.
2: Was, was there a certain time that you realized there was a problem?
1: Um, I would say I went to college And I went to college at Duquesne University, which 10 minutes from from my house, right in the middle of Pittsburgh. And I I realized then, you know, no parents for the first time in my life. Right. I'm alone on a college campus with a bunch of friends. And I realized that I needed The pills to go to go to class in the morning. I realized that once class was over, I started to feel like crap and I needed them again to go to work. And once I got off work, now I had all this money. And so if I wanted to be able to wake up for class in the morning, I would. Have to get pills to be able to do that too. And so I guess probably end of my freshman year of college was when I realized, wow, I need this to do regular, everyday things that everyone else is seemingly doing without the drugs. And then one day in my sophomore year of college, I gave a classmate money to go get me pills and they came back with heroin. That was what they got with the money that I gave them. Um, I did it. And that was when it went really over the edge and my life started to fall apart. You know, I was stealing from my family, from my friends, uh, you know, being the person who collected everyone's money to go get the drugs so I could get my own for free every day, working a full-time job on top of going to school full-time and every free moment of my life revolved around getting drugs. And That's really, I think, when my parents first noticed, too. Right. I was out of the house. And so I had been living this double life of, hey, I'm maintaining, I'm passing my classes. I'm not doing well, but I'm passing and I'm going to work every day and I'm not getting fired from my job. So it wasn't until I started really, you know, stealing to support the habit that I think I and everyone around me realized that it was a lot worse than any of us realized.
0: Yeah, that's It's really scary to... To think about that and to hear that, because I think your story is similar to a lot of people's, where it starts out being prescribed something legitimately and and for pain and for something like an injury or something, and then it, it it evolves and it spirals into something that controls a person's life. And so, I think that's maybe something that I'm glad you mentioned because a lot of people I think don't realize that it's not just people who want to go out and get a quick high; it's people who are prescribed something legitimately for pain and and become addicted or dependent on it um what was the breaking point for you would you say
1: you mean that started my recovery sure or that made me realize that my life was completely out of control well uh both we're two different times you know
0: let's go with both but maybe start with the second
1: okay um so i guess i realized my life was completely out of control towards the end of college, I barely graduated. I had one class that I just couldn't pass and uh, eventually got my diploma. I still don't know how to this day. But after I graduated college, I didn't have a structure to my life anymore. And so as opposed to having to plan to not be sick and plan when I was going to use drugs and plan how I was going to get money, it just turned into a free-for-all, right? So I was bouncing from job to job. A lot of jobs in the services, industry because i needed that cash in my pocket every day to you know support my habit for the next day to be able to wake up and go to work um you know i started getting arrested i had i was never an angel when i was growing up you know i was underage drinking smoking pot just like regular to me high school things um yeah yeah. but but at that point it was really like uh, i was i got Caught sell. I was selling my Suboxone to a police officer, unbeknownst to me. Uh, you know, oh, wow. I always I always say you think you would know if it was a cop that you were selling drugs to until you do it. Right. And so right. I, I, you know, I got in trouble for that, which was my most serious charges. Uh, I was charged with felonies, misdemeanors, a whole a whole list of things that, you know, it could have went very differently and changed the course of my life. But I'd say spending nights in jail, right? Even if it was, sometimes it was one night and I'd be released to my own recognizance. Sometimes it was three nights till my dad could come up with bail money to get me out. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't until 2016 i was on probation for selling suboxone to a police officer and i was on zero tolerance probation which meant that i was getting drug tested every week so for the first eight months i was taking a toddler's urine one of my friend's kids i was taking their drug-free urine and using it for my probation court-ordered drug test and one day i it. Showed up positive for opioids, which to this day, I have no idea how that happened. I know that the child was not taking opioids. Uh, I must have tainted the sample somehow with my hand, but I went straight to jail. And so what happens when you go to jail uh, on a probation violation is you sit on a detainer, which means that all the money in the world isn't bailing you out of jail. You are mm-hmm. literally at the mercy of your judge and your probation officer. And I, that was the first time in all the times I had been to jail, all the times I had been arrested, all the times, even I had been to rehab where I was still using while I was in rehab. Uh, that last stint in jail was the first time that I really went through a full withdrawal detox process. I spent a little over five months in our Allegheny County jail and I mean, it it opened my eyes. I was like, this is not what I want for myself. Uh, It was the first time that my mind wasn't tainted by drugs, alcohol, even cigarettes, right? Because I was in jail. And I think I just saw that I could be doing so much more than what I'm doing now. And that was really my wake up call. Like, okay, when you get out of here, you're not going to take advantage of the second chance you're being given. And we're going to do something to help people. Who had experienced the same things that I had been through?
2: Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I guess real quick, would you say going to jail essentially, you know, saved you from going down an even worse road, or, or you know, how do how do you look at that?
1: I would say I am in recovery, despite jail, not because okay. of. It. Uh, okay. So. I, jail is very traumatic Uh, most of the people who were in the jail at least on my pod which is an all women pod about 90 to 100 women were in there for very similar things as me they were in there because they had untreated mental health diagnoses they were there for they were suffering with substance use disorder a lot of crimes related to those things right stealing so they could support their families, squatting in abandoned buildings so they had shelter from the elements, um, I, I, I knew people who were, got, were in jail for stealing chicken to take home to their kids, right? People who were sex workers who were being criminalized for their profession. And so that experience in itself is traumatic, just to see people every day breaking down and having emotions and talking to their kids on the phone and getting cut off mid-sentence and not being able to hug my parents and having to talk to them through, you know, five feet of glass. And so it was a very traumatic experience. And so I'm just very fortunate that when I came home from jail, all the people, all the bridges I had burned along the way with my drug use were there for me when I came home. I mean, even my little sister, who to the, now is one of my best friends in the whole world. She didn't talk to me for years while I was using. I was, you know, I was. The embarrassing big sister that she didn't want anybody to know she was related to. And that last time I went to jail, she wrote me every other day. You know, my mentor wrote me every day. My parents visited me as often as they could. And, you know, I'm privileged that my parents had the means to be able to support me while I was incarcerated as well. Because one of the things that I learned a lot when I was in there for that longer period of time was just how much it costs to support somebody who's in jail and how I got to talk to my parents every day. But so many other people, their families couldn't afford to do that. And so I'm just fortunate that I had that support both in jail. And then as soon as I was released, because when I got out of jail, I had an extensive criminal record, uh, a suspended driver's license. I lost my license for 10 years. Um, I had burned bridges with all my friends. No, no significant other broken relationships with my family. Uh, You know, everything felt like it was crashing down on me. It would have been so much easier to just go and, grab some drugs and just get right back into the cycle but i had people who really went to bat for me and made sure that i took all that energy i put into getting high every day into something constructive
2: yeah that's that's incredible
0: yeah yeah that's that's that is really um uh incredible that you were able to get through all that and and be where you are today especially you know i'm kind of stuck on the whole like losing your license for 10 years because that that's such a disruptive thing to have happen to a person and I, there's a whole other conversation we're going to have about just like the the criminal justice system and and how i think disruptive something like that is um but when you got out I, recovery what was it like i mean because I can't imagine it was easy to to just quit all oh, that, something that controlled your life for so long. How did you go about doing that?
1: I dove head first into something I had always been passionate about, and that was politics. I had always cared about government, especially local government, ever since student council in elementary school. And it was something I always followed along with, but I never in my adult life had had the opportunity to really go head first into because drugs were my number one priority every day Uh, and so i was sitting in the allegheny county jail for the 2016 presidential election you know i I hear a lot of stories about people who say how much their lives changed after that election and after those results were announced (laughs) and after that president was sworn in but i was actually sitting in a jail cell following along all day to on the radio what was going on and they had projected hillary clinton was going to win and so when i went to bed i was feeling okay i was like all right this is a new day and then in the middle of the night it was probably midnight one in the morning the corrections officer the overnight corrections officer who was a woman I heard her start cheering and I was like they called it Hillary won the election and then I heard Donald Trump's voice come over oh the no here. it was <laughs> like I mean I still have nightmares about that yeah day. and talk so, about
0: trauma I mean my goodness oh
1: yeah that was like the pinnacle of the trauma and so I really just felt crushed like if I wasn't in here and I wasn't Having my life revolved around the drugs that I'm using every day, I could have maybe been out there and made a difference and changed this, you know, this results. And so when I got out, that is exactly what I did is I said I was never going to regret again, not doing everything I could to shape the future of our country and especially here locally, because I am a firm believer that all politics is local and that if you want to change what our country is like at a national scale, you got to start in your own backyard. And so I started just, I mean, literally five days after I got out of jail was the very first women's March in Pittsburgh and Mm -hmm. just seeing all these people who were feeling as frustrated and defeated as I was, but because of just because of the presidency, right? Because of the inauguration had just happened. And so I realized like, these are the type of people that I need to work with to, to make the changes i want to see and so i started working for local candidates you know the school board candidates and um borough council candidates boards of commissioner candidates uh, state rep candidates judicial candidates all these different candidates who were looking for a base to help them i got really involved and in, was volunteering very regularly and then in 2018 i decided to run for uh, the democratic state committee uh, which is kind of like the everybody knows about like the Democratic National Committee. This is the state. Right. Level of it, right? right. So I, I ran for that. And um, that was my first experience with actually being on the ballot. It wasn't a very high profile race. It was, you know, not a legislative position, but just a party position. And so that's where I kind of opened the door to meeting people who were running for different offices at, at higher levels as well. And then the next year in, in 2019, People had been seeing me for years since I had got out of jail, out volunteering for candidates, doing all this work. And they were always asking me, what are you running for? And I said, you don't know my story. I can't run for office. People like me don't run for office. And I just kind of got sick and tired of everybody asking me all the time what I was running for. And in 2019, um, there was a seat that was up for reelection. A 20 year incumbent. Uh, he is basically the definition of Democratic machine establishment here yeah. in Allegheny County. And he was the at large member of Allegheny County Council. And Allegheny County Council is the legislative body of our county. So all of the things that I was passionate about, right, the Allegheny County Jail, um, the fact that our public transportation is so underfunded that I, who didn't have a license at the time, couldn't get anywhere without someone driving me or without calling an Uber and spending a fortune to do so. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, clean air and water, things I had always cared about. All of the things that I was passionate about already that's what this seat was responsible for legislating about. And so I just ran. And I think just the fact that consistently since I got home from jail, I have been busy and just immersed in trying to make my community a better place via electoral politics. I think that that's really what did it for me. I mean, I know that a lot of people work 12 step programs, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous. I have been to hundreds, if not thousands, of 12-step meetings, and it never clicked for me. And I kept hearing every rehab I went to, even in jail, where they allow outside meetings to come in. I kept hearing that, like, this is the only way to not go back to using drugs. This is the only way you don't die, is to work this program. And I always had felt so defeated because it didn't work for me, so I had just kind of accepted the fact that I'm not gonna survive through my substance use disorder. I never had a plan for afterwards. Because I just thought that was how my life was going to be. Oh. And so I'm fortunate that I was able to realize that, hey, I don't need to work a 12-step program and follow these 12 very specific steps in order to be sex- successful in my recovery. I just need to find something that upholds the same principles of bettering myself and having a sense of community and having that support and, you know, putting into the world What I've taken out of it. And so that's what I do every single day, you know? I mean, the one. 12-step program phrase that has always stuck with me is you can only keep what you have by giving it away. And so I feel like that's what I do now. I'm fortunate enough to have a platform as an elected official where I can talk about harm reduction and I can talk about, you know, the guilt that people in recovery carry around, myself included, of all the friends and family members I've lost along the way to substance use disorder and the overdose epidemic. And I can have people come up to me who said I'm, this many years into recovery, and I thought that I could never achieve my goals of getting involved in politics because of the smear campaign that would come along with it. Uh, But I own my story from the very beginning, and from day one, I told everyone, this is who I am, this is what I've been through, and this is how I'm going to represent you. And there's not a minute that I'm sitting down doing nothing, so I guess that that is really how I keep it going every day.
0: Absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned all that, especially like with this 12-step program because it seems like for a lot of people they may not have the level of resilience that you had and it, it almost seems like the system is kind of uh, set up for people to, to fail sometimes. Um, so I'm really glad that you mentioned that because like your story is really compelling and finding something to ta- attach onto like politics is really cool, especially at the local level. I used to live in Nashville, which is I would say fairly comparably sized to Pittsburgh um, and I can't tell you the amount of influence that the county council. It's a consolidated it's a city council. Metro council has over the daily lives of people. So that's really cool. Um, and I'll, I'll turn it over to John. I know he has some other questions.
2: Well, the, I think the big thing is, so, I mean, when I ran for office, I, I got the, you know, I, I was a, what a, a just a, a straight white guy who, you know, uh, m- my dad was in the same position that y- that you were in. Uh, my dad was an addict for years and, and up until the day you left my family. Uh, but, Even when I told people that people kind of looked at me a certain way, you know, if they if they were on the fence of voting for me, you know, sometimes I kind of got these looks in terms of like, um, you know, almost people judging my family. Right. Uh, Did you ever experience what was what was what was the reaction when when you decided to run and and meet people on the campaign trail and tell your story?
1: Oh, it was uh, it was interesting to say the least. So the very first step before I even announced that I was running was talking to the people who were in my support network and letting them know, hey, listen, my plan is to just go out and tell it how it is, tell my whole story. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen 8 Mile uh, in the rap battles at the end where he's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you everything you're going to say about me. And then... You have nothing to say back because I already said it. And so I had told, you know, my boss, my boyfriend, who I'd only been dating for maybe six months at the time, uh, my, my family, because. In my act of addiction, my parents lied to their siblings, my cousins about what was going on. It was always I was away at camp or I was on vacation when really I was in rehab or I was in jail. And they were never really honest because they were ashamed. Right. They, you know, were trying to overcome that stigma of like a, a family member of, of someone who's using drugs. That You know, this was we're talking like two thousand. Six, when I first started using drugs, I mean, no one was really even talking about this to the extent that we do now. And even now, it's kind of hard to find. But so that was definitely the first step is making sure they were cool that, listen, I'm telling my whole story. It's going to be in the news. It's going to be you know online. It's going to be everywhere. So are you guys all cool with this? Right. That was really the first step. And then after that, it was going into rooms and telling my story in front of people. And so I mean, for the first at least month or two, I'd go and walk into rooms. And remember, I I was a what 29 year old woman uh, who was looks Mm -hmm. just regular, I guess is the way I like to think I'm pretty attractive. But, you know, just like a regular looking woman and walking into these rooms and like starting off with just like, here's my story. Here's who I am. Here's where I've been. And it started there would be people laughing Right? Like, who, who are you to think you can run against this legend? I mean, he was, my opponent was a professional wrestler, uh, a steel worker, a long time involved in the democratic politics. It was a joke to a lot of people that I was even challenging him. Uh, there was a lot of jaw dropping and then people coming up later and just like being nebby and wanting to know, you know, the, like the war stories of, of yeah. my time mm-hmm. using drugs. There was a lot of that too. But more so than anything else, it was a lot of people who, after all was said and done, after I was done, the other candidates were done speaking, pulled me aside and told me about how my story touched them personally. Someone in their life who had been impacted by the overdose epidemic, somebody in their life that they loved who was actively using drugs. And and that to me was what really made me realize, like unfortunately, how much my life experience resonated with so many people from all different demographics, ages, races, socioeconomic status. Is too many people have been impacted by the overdose epidemic in our country and in my own backyard. And so I think that that was what really gave me the motivation that like even if there were 10 people in the room laughing at me, shaking their heads as I'm talking about myself. That was one or two people that came up to me to tell me how much it meant to them that I was standing up and telling this story and that I was, they believed that I was genuine. Whereas, you know, these are people who have candidate after candidate come in front of them and tell them all these empty promises. And I was just telling my story telling my truth and so you know that was that that one out of ten reaction made the whole rest of it worth it but i had thick skin i mean i always will say that i have been called worse by better people you know so like nothing that anybody was going to say about me was going to be worse than i had already said about myself when i was using drugs so that that kind of i think is what gave me that thick skin to be able to deal with the nastiness of politics. Local politics are dirtier than national politics. Sometimes. Oh yeah,
0: oh yeah. I I I always say that the. The most cutthroat, scorched earth campaign I've ever witnessed, I was not a part of it, but I ever witnessed, was a local school board election in Nashville. And it's, it gets so personal and so dirty. It, you're so right. Um, I, and I, I think we've glossed over this just a little bit, but it is incredibly impressive that you, that you ousted a 20-year incumbent as someone who is a political newcomer in a countywide election. That is... Should be uh, Jumping a, Johnny. I did,
1: I did yes that's incredible <laughs> uh, no uh, one, i did i didn't even know i could i mean election night i didn't know that i was gonna win uh, but how, i knew how, that worked
0: hard <laughs> how close did your race end up being by the way six points okay so yeah a, that's a pretty good size win then that's inc- that's really impressive um I'm wondering, because now you're in this position where, where you, you do have some influence over law and policy, what are some things that you hope to change or maybe that you have changed or you're pushing for based on your experience, based on your experience with addiction and recovery and being incarcerated?
1: For sure. So uh, definitely my the work I'm most proud of, I am on the Allegheny County Jail Oversight Board, right? So five years ago, I was in the Allegheny County Jail, and today I'm on the oversight board that is statutorily mandated to protect the people who are in that jail. That to me is the most rewarding part of pretty much anything I do. Um, So, so far, my almost entire term has been a pandemic. I was sworn in in January of 2020 and in March of 2020, the world shut down, right? So I have had anything but a normal first term experience. And so all of these grand ideas that I had going into office, I really have had to pivot to realize, like, hey, instead of these grand ideas, people's basic needs aren't being met right now. Right. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, recently. So since the beginning of the pandemic, I introduced a motion to the Jail Oversight Board to put $50 on the commissary accounts of every single person in the jail. We have between 1,600 and 2,000 people in our jail at any given time. And uh, the, the county makes an enormous profit off of phone calls, off of commissary items, off of really just the people who are in the jail and they are incentivized to have a higher population in the jail because they make more money that way. Right? Oh, yeah. talk, well, you, you know, you guys
0: know. There, there are private companies that own the phone systems. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Go, global Tullings is the is the conglomerate yep. that I've been battling with lately. Mm-hmm. But everybody talks about private prisons not realizing that all of our county jails and our state prisons are inherently private because their their profits being made off of them right phone calls commissary um even the labor in our county jail it is staffed by incarcerated people right they make the food in the kitchen they serve the food they clean the pods they do the laundry every aspect of it for not even a penny an hour they make nothing for having those jobs in that jail like the county is profiting off of forced labor in our jails so i introduced that motion uh in very beginning of the pandemic. barely passed, but it passed. So everybody got $50. And then back in October, uh, and then I introduced it every month since. So every month since the pandemic started, they've all gotten $50 a month. And then once there were tablets that were introduced to the jail, which they said, Hey, we don't know when we're going to have in-person visits. So here's the great tablets that you can video chat with your family members, not reminding people that is the cost of using these visits are free. The cost of talking to your loved ones on a tablet, astronomical, so I decided to introduce another motion and give them $50 a month on their tablet accounts as well. So since October, when the tablets are introduced and still to this day, every month, every single person in the jail gets $100. And I cannot tell you the response I've gotten from that, from family members. Um, I get letters from the jail almost every single day, to my house, to my office. Um, they, they they use inter-office mail, so they don't even have to use postage because my office and the jail are both on the county mail system. They can send letters that way without any postage. Yes. It's just, it's the coolest thing ever knowing that it's had an impact. Right. So, uh, it's, So kind of related, I also introduced a piece of legislation that hasn't been voted on yet. It's sitting in committee right now, waiting for committee hearings, uh, but to eliminate profits made off of people in the jail. So it's, you know, the inevitable goal is free phone calls. That's what we're working towards. But when I was doing research, trying to figure out how the county would pay for phone calls, I realized it wasn't the cost of the phone calls that was the burden. It was the loss of all the profits that they were making off of 69% profit. Profits on phone calls alone really yeah wow. a bag of doritos in jail that cost us 50 50 cents at the convenience store cost people in jail three dollars so yeah. you know just using my experience of my parents spent thousands of dollars in five and a half months that i was in jail thousands of dollars because they wow. could other people were out here no jobs right lost their jobs due to the pandemic they uh, uh, unemployment. I don't know how it's been for you guys, but our unemployment system here has been an absolute disaster with people mm-hmm. still to this day waiting for back pay unemployment from the beginning of the pandemic. So family members were having to choose between putting food on the table at home. Or putting money on the commissary accounts of their loved ones that were in jail. So that's been a big one. Um, Some other pieces of legislation that I have introduced, uh, trying to ban less lethal weapons, tear gas, rubber bullets, uh, you know, that came in the wake of the... George Floyd's murder and the protests that were happening all across the country, I watched my friends get shot in the face with rubber bullets in the street in front of me and get tear gassed and horses attacking us and almost running over my back. I mean, Jesus. there are just things that everything that I legislate every day has to do with something that either I've experienced, that I've seen someone experience, or or that my constituents have told me about. You know, One of the things I'm most proud of is I am on social media all day, every day, answering questions from constituents because they don't know the formal methods on how to get in touch with an elected official. But they know if they tweet me with a question, I'm gonna be right there answering them. Or they can slide into my DMs on Facebook and I'll be there to help them out. And so I say, you know, there's just so much that I'm, I'm proud of that we've been working on, but I've realized that I can't legislate anything by myself. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, But I can't. So I've I've pivoted to realizing that this year, half of the seats on our county council are up. And so that's what I've really been putting all my energy into now is electing people who are going to pass less lethal force bills, who are going to pass a fracking ban for our county parks, who are going to pass budgetary amendments to increase access to our public transportation system. All the things I've been trying to do and get two, three votes for, I realize that I'm never going to change the conservative members of council's mind, but I can elect new help, elect new people to take them out, replace them who will vote with our community members at the forefront of their minds. So,
2: yeah that's hey that's the best way to do it if they're if they're not going to agree find somebody else that will uh bethany your story is incredible we really do appreciate you sharing it with us and sharing it with all of our listeners they're going to find it to be incredible they're going to see a lot of the good that comes from it is there somewhere that people can learn more about you if, if maybe this didn't answer all their questions
1: Yeah, my website, www.BethanyHallam.com. It's B-E-T-H-A-N-Y-H-A-L-L-A-M. Same name, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, Don't Snapchat me, Uh, but anything else, I'm always here. (laughs) Nice.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, and last thing I'll say, just because I, it, out of curiosity, I do have to plug this. We have a, a John and I have a friend and I want to see if you've heard of their place in Pittsburgh. Um, pepperoni Rolls is a really uh, important aspect of Appalachia. And there's a place called Rolling Pepperoni. I think it's in the Stanton Heights neighborhood. Um, and if you haven't checked it out, it's, it's a really cool shop. So I highly recommend it. Yeah.
1: Tell me the name of it one more time in Stanton Heights.
0: Rolling Pepperoni
1: rolling so i actually another thing that i do is i have a food blog called watch bethany eat and i have not been there and i thought i've been to almost every restaurant in allegheny county so that is going on my list as soon as we're done here
0: i'm gonna send you the link right now in the chat so you can check it out and the 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 woman who runs it cat is just incredible so it's a really cool place i hope you check it out
1: and i love pepperoni rolls so that made my day
0: (laughs) hell yes all right awesome well bethany thank you you so much This has been a, a really great conversation really enjoyed it and um and i just appreciate you sharing your story with us
1: yeah thank you guys so much for having me and thank you for shining light on what's going on in our country right now and especially our region
0: That was our interview with Bethany Hallam, and officially capped off our series on opioids. John, parting thoughts on the interview, on the series, on anything.
2: I again, I think the series was was what it was. I think it was a it was something that started as, uh, it, you know, a a topic like opioids is difficult to cover. It's not the easiest thing to cover, right? Because there's so many different perspectives. But I think that the five episodes give you kind of this story through the eyes of, you know, different people. And I think that that's what's going to allow the series to live on well past us, Chuck.
0: I I think I I was really proud of the series. Um, Every part about it, from the people that we got on to the message that we put across. And I, I think that it's something that again will be an important part of our contribution to this podcast so we hope that you all enjoyed it but finally he is the apothecary of appalachia concocting a dose of truth so strong it will knock the bullshit right out of you it's impossible beef with big john ladies and gentlemen and gender non-binary folks worldwide we are pleased to present to you Bell. South coming to you live from a foreclosed Ponderosa back-to-back buffet world champion beef with the bridge.
2: I've I've been torn on this, right? First off, before I go into my beef, I just want to say I forgot to mention this. This series has also been weird for me uh in general just thinking about uh obviously growing up the way i did i had a lot of hatred towards my biological father and hearing some of these perspectives i'm still not a fan of his right but i can understand the addiction part of it i can't understand a lot of the other stuff but i can understand you know maybe he was battling a little bit more than i've thought of before. Um, so it, it's been different for me. Uh, so I just want to throw that in. Anyway, when it comes to beef this week, Chuck, this happened actually while we were, uh, we were talking earlier because I had a different beef. I I had one all lined up. I was all ready, but then this one just, it just came into my lap, Chuck. And that is, I got beef with Google I'm taking on Google. Here
0: we go. All right. Um, Only like the 10th largest company in the world. Why not? They are very important, though, to our success, though. So we do like to be on Google. Well, just putting that out there in the world. Okay.
2: All right. Just that being said, Google's got some stuff they got to change. Well, they do. 100%. Uh, They suck. (laughs) So, uh, Chuck and I have been researching some ideas for the podcast, how, you know, growing it, uh, things that we want to do for you all, but in that, I just happened to be on Google Image Search, and I just happened to type in Appalachians, because I just wanted to see, right? And Chuck, you know that when you type in anything into the images, it'll give you, like, searches that are relevant to it, right? Sure. Well... (laughs) when you do that in appalachia a couple things come up west virginia kentucky map poor (laughs) that is not (laughs) that is being poor is not an appalachian thing yes we have in we have an economic we have economic issues just like everywhere else but to me this and you go and you look at the pictures chuck it's not just this um i this idea of of lack of money. It is the stereotypical Appalachians that they're using. They, they're continuing. So even think about this, Chuck, a guy, you know, a little kid is doing a research project on Appalachia. Let's just say, right. Goes to Google image search and they're going to see that they're going to click on that. And then they're going to be engrossed in those stereotypes again. And that really sucks, especially for the company that big. And then I, I redo it. The number one thing that comes up poverty. So it's constantly changing, but it's still the same, you know, same idea. Every single time you, you Google Appalachia or Appalachians, those searches come up. And again, I'm not saying that we don't have problems in Appalachia. What I am saying is that that doesn't define Appalachia. Appalachia has so many other things that you could be Google imaging, you know, they're, Look at all of the beautiful places throughout this region. Why is that not one of the first things that comes up on Google Images? To me, Google's got to fix this. The stereotypes are getting old. We're in 2021 and everything else seems to be progressing except for this. Companies still continue to get away with this shit. And if we don't start talking about it more and if we don't start pushing back, that stereotype is never, ever going to be... Taken away, it's always going to define this region, and that to me is such a mistake. It's and it's it's just so it's such a low value for this region when there's so much more to it.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm a little torn on this because there there is a factual basis behind it. Uh, Like Appalachia is is without a doubt factually like. In more poverty than the rest of the country, like poverty rates are are higher by a significant percentage, and so, um, so I think that merits attention. Now, whether or not like it defines the region, I don't think it should, but I think it also should should um, uh, invite a critical lens to why there is poverty. And so, I think that may be the larger problem of like if you just look at Appalachia as oh poverty, great, like that that's not the whole story. It's the reasons why. It's the it, it's the reasons that people get into poverty and the reasons there's systemic poverty in Appalachia. And a lot of it has to do with with large corporations that are pillaging it, taking advantage of the people and leaving them with nothing. And when that happens, it's it's impossible to get out of it. So, I mean, I'm kind of with you, but I'm also like it's it's a difficult thing because it is a it, it's a huge problem. But
2: without a doubt it is it is definitely a problem without a doubt. But I don't know if you clicked on it. That's where I started to have the issues. Because, like you said, we could talk about all the the different, the systemic poverty, why it happens in Appalachia. We could educate people on what's happening in Appalachia. Google could definitely do that, especially through images. It'd be a lot easier, right? A lot easier for them. But instead, the ninth picture that comes up is a little kid smoking a cigarette, right? Which, again, stereotypical Appalachia. There are people like... Again, to me, this does not scream the real, uh, the real poverty, you know, the real reasons behind poverty. It just, it allows people to look at one image and say, yep, that's why they're poor every single time. And that bothers me because there's so much more to it. And I know that it's difficult in an image to define that, but again, you could easily, you start scrolling down and then you start getting some of the better pictures why the hell are the other ones at the top?
0: Yeah, that seems like a different issue then than poverty It's just the... Because, like, I mean, I don't associate a kid smoking a cigarette with poverty I, I... There's... I don't know what the fuck I associate that with, but... Right, but that's... That's what that's what's that's on it It's weird I don't know, I mean... You know, and then you start
2: looking and, and it's a lot of, like, you know, people... You know, it's a lot of really old pictures, right? Like, uh jfk's visit stuff like that which i get it those are pretty big pictures but like i said you start scrolling down and you start to see things that are actually important to the region
0: those should be at the top no I'm, i mean i agree with you well um sundar pichai is welcome on this show ceo of google to talk about it um open invite <laughs> so but yeah i mean look it we've Stereotypes are coming out the ass everywhere. It's just you know, I mean, this is certainly one of them. Um, but I do think that I think that, that the the discussion of poverty in Appalachia is, very, is a conversation that deserves nuance oh, it's and needed. and yeah. more examination the, than just a the doubt. Diane Sawyer thing. Cool. Well. Wow. Yeah. But there we go. We live in a yeah. We live in a world where we want immediate gratification, and if it can't fit into a tweet, then it's not worth reading. So that explains why something like that happens. Anyway, we hope that you uh, um, read uh, a lot, including stuff we put on our website, and uh, we hope that you enjoyed the show. Um, Like us on on Apple. Uh, Follow us on the social medias. Leave us a review. Join our Patreon. And um, check out our store. It'll all be linked in the show notes. And thank you again, and thank you for listening to Apple Latch, especially this series on opioids. We will talk to you again next week. Bye.